Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, May 23rd, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero. Today we're talking about a fish that I really love. I call them the Gambusia, specifically Gambusia affinis and Gambusia holbrooki, the mosquito fish. So let's do it. And I got a, I got a haiku. Gambusia, not fancy guppy, mosquito killer, live birther. Yeah, that, that about covers it. Hang it up. I like to kind of look up the family of a fish when I want to know a little bit more about context. And I was reading about these fish last night and I've had a lot of experience with them too, but they actually include the the larger family includes a lot of fish that people might be familiar with as well from the aquarium trade. So you've got like guppies, your mollies, your platies, and your swordtails. So these are all live bearing, smaller fish, kind of pretty little aquarium fish. So so what family is it, Katrina? <laughs> Posilidae. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I usually say Posilidae. Is there two eyes there or one? There's two eyes. Two eyes. So I usually say Posilidae. Some people run those together. That's how I like to say it. So these are small little fish. Did you mention mosquito eating at the beginning? I guess you said mosquito fish. Yeah, they're mosquito fish. And they sometimes, you'll know, you'll get mosquito that land on the water. Really what they're eating is the larvae because... Well, People usually know about mosquitoes is, you know, they'll come and bite you, but they require water to breathe. And so they actually have these aquatic larval stage that they start out as. And you'll see these things, they kind of curl up. I, I used to collect them when I was a kid and watch them in little little tanks that I had before I knew what they were. And so in order to try and nip it in the bud before they get to the point where they can actually parasitize humans and other animals and spread diseases, people try and put these fish into anything that might be holding water, like backyard kind of ponds or pools or something like that that aren't being used so they can eat those and and kind of abate the mosquito population. Yeah, and mosquitoes like that stagnant water. And they're kind of cool. They'll actually hang. I've watched them a lot too. They'll hang at the surface and they actually kind of breathe through their back end. So they got a couple stages, but those larvae will hang down. They got like a big head and a worm body. And those are called uh, wrigglers. Very scientific there. I know, right? So yeah, they'll get nervous and they'll kind of squirt their way down a little bit. But yeah, they, they spend a bit of time in the water before hatching out and becoming those mosquitoes that we don't like very much. And those fish are kind of set up with their mouth, right? Kind of facing up at the surface so they can slurp those things down pretty easily. And I was reading that an adult mosquito fish can eat about 150 mosquito larvae in an eight hour period. Their morphology is really designed to kind of eat on the surface. So if you look at these fish, they don't get very big. The females are larger than the males. It is, you get a cool sexual dimorphism uh, going on. The females can get bigger. And by bigger, I mean somewhere on the order of maybe two to three inches. The males are generally somewhere around one and a half inches. And they do, they kind of have this flat head with this mouth that's pointed upwards. They're generally kind of white to yellow, a little translucent where you can kind of see some of their interiors. Also, you're going to see that they're generally pretty fat, the females at least, and they're also going to have a much more rounded caudal fin. Their tail is going to be really round, and they're going to have kind of matching dorsal and anal fins. So it's kind of got this shape where it's sort of got a flat head, big belly, And then coming off the back of that big belly, you kind of got two symmetrical fins and then a rounded tail. And again, we're not talking, if you see it any bigger than three inches, you probably don't have a gambusia on your hands. Females are often pregnant. 
and they'll have this gravid spot, this black spot that you can use to distinguish them from the males. And another thing that you can use to distinguish them is the males have what's called a gonopodium. With a name like that, you can imagine it's a pretty interesting thing that nature has created with that fin called the gonopodium. It's basically, you know, it's a modified anal fin. It's analogous to, but not homologous to, the penis in mammals uh, and serves to inseminate the females internally. So that's not something that you see with a lot of fishes. So they are viviparous where the male will inseminate the female and she can actually store the sperm, the milt, till it's time to go and she chooses to and then fertilize her eggs. Once they're born, the, they'll actually reach sexual maturity really fast on the order of like 40 to 60 days. So you can have in the same spawning season, fish that were born at the beginning of that spawning season actually do their spawning later in the season. So it's a really fast turnaround time. It's, it's great for trying to research these fish and research, you know, general things on fish, on teleasts uh, in a lab setting because they have such a quick turnaround time. And you mentioned eastern and western mosquito fish. So those are the ones we have here in the U.S. But these fish get spread around a bit. And there's also, I mean, I think they do, they've recognized like 45 species in this genus. Can we talk a little bit about where these fish are and how, I mean, people see these little fish in the water. They think, oh, it's like a minnow, right? And I guess I want to I wanna kind of get into the difference between these fish and some of the guppies that people might be a little bit more familiar with. Well, I, I don't know a ton of the differences between guppies. I'm not super familiar with the guppies, although they are much more closely related to those other live bears, those other postileids, than they are to minnows, which would be under Leucicidae as another small kind of shiny fish that don't typically have those kind of upturned mouths, certainly don't have the same fin position and fin structure and stuff like that. And you mentioned that there's these two in the U.S. There's actually a whole lot more in the U.S. And this is a new world fish. So we got these two species that are really pretty broadly distributed. We talked about Eastern versus Western. Eastern is really going to be from your Chattahoochee Basin east. So that's kind of your Georgia, Alabama border east up to about Maryland and down south into Florida. So that's your Eastern species, Holbrookie. And then Aphinus is going to be from your Mobile drainage, which is down in Alabama west to Texas and the, and the Rio Grande. You see the highest diversity in sort of the southwestern United States down into Mexico and then into the kind of greater Antilles. I think the type species is actually from Cuba. And that's actually an interesting point there where the name Gambusia, the genus name, comes from. So it's from the Cuban slang term Gambusino. And I don't know exactly what that means. I've seen varying sources. Generally, I think it's means something like useless or nothing like ah we were going out fishing for gambesinos or catching gambesinos and we we're catching nothing because they're so insignificant although i've also read that the term is like a freelance gold panner or freelance miner which that doesn't make as much sense to me but i i'm not sure Hi, listeners. This is Charlotte Moore Lambert, the producer interjecting because i can't not interfere when we don't know what a word means so you guys have been on snipe hunts, right? Have you guys ever been on a snipe hunt? No, they're not real. Right. But has anybody ever sent you on one? Like, were you ever in scouts or anything? Like a figurative, like a wild goose chase or like a literal? You know, yeah, it is. It's a wild goose chase. It's usually done sort of like, a, it's like a friendly hazing activity. You tell the newbies while you're on like a camping trip or whatever, like, oh, we heard there were snipe out here. And you then you get a bunch of people going, what are snipe? And you're like, you don't know what a snipe is? 
It's this, and then everybody describes Snipe, you know, totally different ways. It's this crazy monster or whatever, but they're real pests and we need to make sure that they don't come and bother our camp. So here's what we need you guys to go out and look for the Snipe. And then they just go and they're lost forever. So often to tell someone to to describe something as a Snipe hunt is to describe it as a, a fruitless, useless search, right? So what I found about the mosquito fish in Spanish, Spanish, Spanish from Spain, there's a similar word, gamusino, without the B. There's a, an, an Andalusian form, gambusino, which literally means imaginary animal whose name is used to joke around with novice hunters. Mm, okay. It's a snipe. Oh, that's pretty cool. So I, I don't know. I don't wonder why like a fairly useful animal that eats mosquitoes would get that name. But anyway, if you're fishing for gambusinos, you're going on a snipe hunt. Well, I've caught him. You've caught him. You've caught snipe. So in terms of um, folks interested in getting to know this fish more, I mean, you mentioned aquarium. You've had these fish in an aquarium. I have too. And I've raised guppies and stuff and kind of live birds for it. They really are a fun fish to watch. And I've actually taken mosquito larvae and put them in there and watched them eat it. it is a, it's a really neat way to interact with the fish. So I, I don't know if you have any tips on how you've caught them. I know I've caught them with a net before when I was a kid. But in terms of micro fishing, what are your, what's your technique for catching something so small like this? So, yeah, well, let's talk about a couple things there. One, you, you talked about them being a good aquarium fish. And I think definitely for beginners, that's true. You know, they're not the flashiest fish out there, but they're very easy to care for. You can find them in lots of places in the wild because they're tolerant of a whole range of water conditions, high oxygen, low oxygen, the decent salinity, low salinity, really muddy. So you can find them in lots of places and that also makes them an ideal aquarium fish because it's really hard to kill them. They're also good if you want to try and start learning how to breed fish in captivity. Now, you got to be careful because, like I said, the the females, they can hold on to that milt until it's time to go. And if there's predators around, they're not going to spawn. They're not going to reproduce. And they consider the male gambusias to be predators. So if you're trying to spawn them in captivity, you're going to want to get the males out of there in order for the females or make sure they have sufficient hiding places. And then once... They have released the juveniles. You want to get the mom out of there because she might cannibalize the young as well. So that's something to consider. And like they'll eat, you know, all kinds of stuff. You talked about feeding them real mosquito larvae, little red worms that you can buy frozen. Those work too. And they are pretty easy to actually harvest from the wild if you know where to go. A lot of times slower moving backwaters, they're not great swimmers in a current or anything. So they are really thriving in slow, sluggish kind of backwaters is where you'll find them. And you often see them swimming along the surface. So using a net, either a dip net or a seine will work really well. I've had a lot of times where I'm wading out sort of into the swamps with a very small seine. I just kind of get underneath them and just lift up and catch a whole bunch. But I also mentioned that these fish, they kind of helped get me into microfishing. When I started microfishing, this is kind of the species that I wanted to get because these shiners and stuff that some people consider microfish, I can catch them on traditional tackle sometimes. But a gambusia, like I say, they're so small that even like a size 20 hook for like when you're fly fishing, that's oftentimes too big to fit in their mouth. So I had to go out and get special hooks, these little size 30 gamakatsus, I think I've mentioned them before, and use those to catch the gambusia. And I've caught... Both eastern and western, the, the smallest fish I've ever caught hook and line 
was a one is either one and a half or one and a quarter inch female gambusia down the Okefenokee swamp. And I actually, I swatted a mosquito off my arm. It was in good enough condition that I was able to somehow thread it on this tiny hook and just placed it off of a dock. And this thing came up and, you know, made a very small splash on the surface. I actually got a nice picture of it with the hook still embedded in its mouth and everything. So that was quite an accomplishment. You know, when you're micro fishing, it's oftentimes catching the smaller fish that's an achievement because you know that it's unlike when you're fishing for a trophy fish that's big it's that there's not a ton of them out there you know they might be smart and rebuff lures and, and stuff like that but in general it's not hard to get them once they've decided to hit something it's not super hard to set the hook and whatnot whereas with micro fishing there's usually lots of these small fish but actually getting them to get on a hook is quite the challenge so you it can be even more frustrating because you see them all out there and you can spend an hour trying to get them and still not do it yeah i don't have time for that i use a net um when you catch one of these on a hook how do you actually unhook the fish without hurting the fish like what are some handling tips for folks i know we haven't really gotten into the specifics with micro fishing yet but yeah how do you handle a one inch fish in a way that doesn't squish it when you take the hook out carefully <laughs> also one one thing i should note about these little hooks is the ones that i use they're all barbless so they come out pretty easy and i i think that's really probably the way to go using a barbed hook for these guys is really pretty unnecessary and you are going to lose some fish pull them out and, and have them fall off and that's another part of the challenge but yeah using a barbless hook makes them much easier to to release and you can also use and I, I use this for larger fish too, hemostats or some pair of small pliers or tweezers or something uh, so that you can actually get in there and grab the hook when, you know, this fish's head is smaller than like my fingernail. So you can imagine it can be tough. But oftentimes too, you know, have a net with you because once you get them and pull them up out of the water, the good chance that they're wiggling around is actually going to cause them to fall off. So I find that a lot of the time, I just get that net under them and they fall right in the net and I actually don't have to handle them all that much. Let's talk about introducing species to control pests. I mean, sometimes that goes really well. This fish has actually been introduced to control mosquitoes and malaria. So hoping we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's worth bringing up. You know, a lot of times when species are moved around, there's unforeseen ecological consequences. And now, of course, this fish, you can imagine with its name, mosquito fish, is introduced in lots of places to abate mosquitoes. One, because just people don't like mosquitoes. They don't like the itchy bumps again in the arms. But also because mosquitoes, they transmit a lot of diseases. You know, you mentioned malaria. And so one place where this has actually been successful is over in sort of southern Russia near Sochi. You know, that's where they had the Olympic Games back a couple years ago. They introduced them. It was wildly successful. I'm sure that there was other things going on as well, but they've kind of eradicated malaria in that place, and they actually even put up a statue in recognition of what this fish has done over there. Now, it's not a huge monument, but it's really cool. And if I ever make it over to Russia, over to Sochi area, I'm definitely going to check it out. But then in other places, notably Australia, these fish are considered a pest. They're considered an invasive species. Lots of work is being done to try to eradicate them. And some even claim that their introduction has actually made the uh, mosquito problem worse. And the way that it could make the mosquito problem worse is by having this species in there. Because they, they don't just eat mosquito larvae. They eat other things too. And supposedly what's being said down there is that they've actually outcompeted native fish that also eat mosquito larvae. And 
by doing so have reduced the number of species or the, at least the number of individuals that are around eating mosquito larvae and actually had an increase in the mosquito population. And so what that sort of means for just species introduction in general, it's not a great idea. If you wanted to do mosquito abatement in Australia, use a native species that does that. And when I say native at this point, I'm generally talking about fish that historically were native or now are common or abundant. At this point, you know, out in California, for instance, you can still, I, I think, get free gambusia from the state. If you call them up and say, hey, I got a pond that's a mosquito problem. Can you come bring me some gambusia? And they'll just come and give you some free fish. And they're not historically native there, but they've become established. And so at this point, moving them to a new spot it really isn't going to do much damage. They're not actively trying to get rid of them because that would be so difficult and take so much money to try and do. Uh, at this point, they've any damage that they, they're going to do has probably been done. And so there's some places where it's done good, some places where it's done bad, some places where it's inconclusive. But in general, you know, don't move fish to new places if they aren't already there. Yeah. And if you have an aquarium of these fish, yeah, just be cautious as well. We've talked about that on other episodes, but just don't be moving fish around, especially if you've had them with other species and disease transfer is another issue to be aware of. So, yep. Good point. A lot of times the issue with getting rid of fish once they're established in a place is that you have to kill everything in the system to get rid of it. And so one thing that they're trying to do just to kind of reduce the productivity, because these fish we mentioned, they're prolific. They can spawn multiple times in a year. They can produce lots of, of young. And they're tiny. The babies are tiny. Yeah. And they, so they just really take over. So one thing they're trying to do is make it where they're not reproducing. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, these fish, they, they can kind of hold on and wait till there aren't predators around, wait till the conditions are good and then go. And so there aren't these natural predators that they have down there in Australia. But so what, what some guys have done, they've created a robot largemouth bass to swim around in these systems and basically just scare the fish into not reproducing so much, huh. which is kind of interesting. I don't know if that's a cost-effective mechanism of control just constantly swimming a robot around but uh it is fascinating and interesting that they can do that hmm. so there's been some cool studies done talking about predator presence absence and the size shape and uh form of the gonopodium on the males which i think is kind of interesting what does the presence of predators do to the size and shape and form of the gonopodium so i've actually read two conflicting studies both by the same author, Brian Langerhans. One study says you have predators absent, the males are going to have a larger gonopodium. One says when the predators are present, they're going to have a larger gonopodium. What the one study showed is that the females kind of unanimously across individuals in this species tested, they preferred males with the larger gonopodium. And again, the gonopodium that we're talking about, that's basically like this long tube-like extension on the male's anal fin. And so fish with a bigger one have a better chance of mating. However, it makes them worse swimmers to have a bigger gonopodium. Mm. And so the idea is like, okay, in a system where the fish don't have to worry so much about being predated upon, they can have, a big one. They can have the bigger gonopodium and, and they'll, they'll attract uh, mates better. Now, the other study, again, same, same guy, I will note, I believe there's a different species and I believe different reproductive behavior that I think could be related to this. So there's kind of two modes of reproduction within these. You, you traditionally think about fish and there's this kind of this 
kind of cooperative. The, the males try and impress the female, and then she'll agree to mate with them. But then there's also a more coercive style where coercive copulation is the term that uh, we'll use. And so the other study was looking at one that does a lot of this kind of coercive copulation. And what they found was that in populations that have more predators, they'll have the larger gonopodium. Again, this is in conflict with the other study. And it'll actually have a different form. It'll be more elongate and I think a different shape to it as well that suggests like, okay, this is easier to reproduce with the females when the females aren't willing to cooperate because it's in the male's interest to just reproduce as much and as quickly as possible. And so they're saying, okay, well, when there's predators around, they, they need to get it on even when the females aren't willing to let them. And so they've kind of evolved this larger, more slender, and again, differently formed on a podium to sort of take an approach to that. Fish have some fascinating reproductive strategies. And even, yeah, this is reminding me of our pirate perch discussion a while ago. But yeah, just some neat stuff to dig into. I wonder if they could have like a little tiny neuter program where they're like snipping those gonopodium fins in Australia. <laughs> Microfish them, snip those. What a cool, what a cool little fish. And we'd encourage you guys to get out and know all the fish, especially some of these smaller fish that have really important pieces of history associated with them. and. Very cool fish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. 